Well, good morning, and let me welcome you to Church of the City. My name is Russell. I'm a teaching pastor here at Church of the City. I'm really, really grateful to be with you this morning. As we think about what it means to be this community, as we orient ourselves around Jesus, which is our um, unabashed pursuit as a group of people that regardless of where we're coming from, regardless of our story this week, regardless of our bigger narrative that we're each a part of, what's happening in this space right now is that we are a community of people who on some level in some way are attempting to orient life around Jesus. Now that's a really challenging concept. Uh, I think a lot because it sounds good as a soundbite and it's really difficult to put tangibility to it a practice to it. How do we actually orient life to Jesus? How do we wrap life around the teachings, the way of Jesus? Well, that that doesn't get um, any easier the more we try to put words to understanding who Jesus is. For instance, as we think about the storyline of Scripture, and we've been talking through this a little bit because we're at a very crucial moment in the storyline of Scripture that we're together as a community journeying through, we use words like, uh, like gospel, Words that are uh, part of the, the vocabulary, the lexicon of American Christianity. And for many of us, we struggle if we were pressed to define well what gospel is. We know there are such things as gospels in the Bible. In fact, there are four of them. Um, we understand that predominantly they're around Jesus, around his story. And beyond that, if, if we are pressed, we might struggle to come to terms with or put, put good words to what gospel actually is. And then beyond that, to then say, I I would like that to be part of my life, and here is the way I will do that. So this morning, what I want to do, before we even get to our text that we're going to be in, I want to lay this out a little bit, because the richness of what we're talking about in the storyline of Scripture, where we are right now, it'll be helped by our our really good understanding of what's going on in both the storyline of Scripture and, and then this particular piece of it, where it fits. So, if you can think like in your minds along a, a timeline here, and I'll try to do this backwards because I'll do it for your viewing. So we'll start over here, which feels backwards to me. I also, by the way, when I like come to stand and sit on the stool, I find myself predominantly starting on this side of the room, but there were people sitting in these seats over here. And I sat over here and I found it really difficult to turn to my right. I don't know what that was. I'm used to turning to my left. It's a weird thing. And this morning I'm having a hard time thinking about time starting over here on my right. And moving to my left. But for your, for your sake, I'll, I'll try to make this work, okay? I will turn to my right, and I will start time on my right as well. Sorry, that's not, there's no point in any of that. <laughs> so we, we have the beginning and origin story of things, right? Um, and in our Christian theology narrative, what we understand to be true, there's this moment where there's a breakdown of relationship between God and humans. Uh, we call that the fall. We call that a separation. We call that rebellion. And the outcomes of that is humanity is living in, in the consequences of its brokenness that we live in distance from the God who created. And the the journey away from that moment as it proceeds through time is rocky at best. What we have in the scriptures we call the Old Testament is predominantly focused on that period of time. And it isn't exhaustive. There are many people in many places that aren't addressed in the storyline of scripture. But what we see in the storyline of scripture is we see this regularity with which God is trying to interact with people. And we see these contact moments where the activity of God and the story of people, they cross paths. And what we see on a regular basis is we see humans, much like ourselves, doing their best to be human, at the same time also making a mess out of their own lives, repeatedly. We, we oftentimes 
create heroes out of these biblical characters, and that's probably not fair to them. They weren't heroic. Many of them were, were pretty broken. And they're trying to wrestle with that brokenness, trying to figure out who they were in light of a God who created. And then we see these moments where God shows up at these intervals trying to establish a couple things. First, an overriding narrative that people aren't alone. That we're not just left here on our own devices to make a mess of things, harm each other, abuse each other, receive harm and abuse from one another. But instead, God is still aware of how broken things are. And then beyond that, as God interacts with people, to point out something that's really painfully obvious. That no human is God. That none of us have the capacity to wave our hand and make everything right again that's been broken in our own life or other people's lives. And so the interaction with things like the law or the sacrificial system or the people of Israel as a, a holy set-apart kind of group is intended to point out the fact that no matter how hard we try, we can never reclaim what's been lost on our own. And then we have this, this moment, this kind of pinnacle moment in human history when something quite wild happens called the gospel. We'll leave that alone for just a second. We'll come back to it. And then we have this period of time afterwards. It's a period of time where we live. The space and time when something has changed, the fundamental fabric kind of level of being human. And whatever it is, whatever time period we're in, it, it depends and hinges on what gospel is. In fact, I would call it the outcomes of the gospel. The potentiality of something that was not quite as possible prior to it has now become quite possible. So our attention then is drawn. And in the storyline of scripture, this is how that works. Our, our minds, our hearts are drawn to whatever gospel is. Now, you might understand the word gospel to mean good news. It's great, accurate rendering from the first century Greek uh, storyline. That is what it means. But it's, it wasn't exclusive to Christians. It's a word that was used across culture. It was just meant to mean something good. In fact, the first time it's used in a religious sense is actually used of the coming of the, the emperor as the emperor becomes God on earth to Rome. And the language there uh, used of the emperor that told everyone in the Roman Empire is, good news, we have a God king. As Christians come along, as people come into the storyline, becoming aware of what God is up to in the midst of them, the same words are used, the same good news kind of language. Now what happens here is God shows up in the middle of the story. Where prior we see God interacting with people almost what feels like at arm's length. An awareness on God's part that people are broken, an awareness that he doesn't want them to be alone, an awareness that they're not done working with, with humanity, and yet somehow something's limited. And that altogether fundamentally changes in a moment that we call the Incarnation which is, in my view, the first part of what gospel is, of what good news is. Incarnation, some of you are painfully and sorely tired of me using this particular description of what incarnation is, but I still feel like it's one of the best to understand the incarnation. We have a story, right? And we're going to look at it this morning. It's, it's a birth story, right? It's, it's, a, it's a, a mom giving birth to a child. But in American English, incarnation doesn't really... Um, tell us a lot of what's going on in this. And so incarnation um, comes through the Latin into English. And other love languages are still around today, um, Spanish in particular, um, but also in Italian. The concept of the incarnation is a little clearer. Um, 
one of my favorite foods growing up um, was carne asada tacos. Um, you know what carne asada tacos are, right? Yeah, some of you should on your hands, right? It's, it's barbecued steak. Carne, you hear in the Spanish, has its founding in the same concept. Um, and incarnation uh, has that word in it, incarne, the incarnate, the in-fleshness, the in-meatness of God. What we actually have going on in the incarnation is a rendering of the metaphysical reality of God in flesh and bones terms. That's the incarnation. That God shows up as a baby. Now, that may not seem altogether wild to you at this particular moment, because if you've been around Christianity, we talk a lot about this. I mean, Christmas is coming. We'll talk about it again then. You've been around this narrative for some time, but let it just sit on you for a second how wild it is that a God would show up among people the way this God does. We're going to talk about that a bit more here in a second. But then as the storyline moves on, the incarnate, the flesh and bones version of God experiences humanity the way we do. It doesn't end at a birth. It begins at a birth. And the whole storyline of this individual, Jesus of Nazareth, is the incarnation of God. It's the in-fleshness of God, the, the part of God interacting with humanity from inside the narrative. And you know how the story goes, right? This incarnate God, as he interacts with humanity, ends up irritating the people in power. They find him guilty of crimes he didn't commit. They unjustly murder him. We call that his crucifixion. And three days later, through the power of the Spirit, overcomes death, and we call that resurrection. Gospel itself is made up of those three pieces. The incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. The goodness of God can be expressed concisely, although not completely. It's very complicated if we start digging into what's going on in each of those pieces. But can be expressed concisely with those three parts. The incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Now, here's the wild thing about this, in my view. All three of those depend on one another. And something's been a bit amiss, I think, in American Christianity for some time. We have overemphasized parts of this and underemphasized others. For instance, a predominant refrain in American Christianity right now has to do with the cross and how there is a tremendous amount of focus and emphasis on the Christian needing the blood of Jesus. Now, I'm not arguing with that reality. There's something quite profound and beautiful happening there. But let me just put this out there on the table. The crucifixion is impossible without the incarnation. You can't murder what doesn't live. You can't take life away from, what, from something that doesn't have life. We, we tend to, I think, in our thinking, adjust the gospel to mean the cross. And I want to I move us away from that this morning. Because what's going on in the storyline of Scripture is so much richer than just the cross. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the power of the cross. I'm trying to minimize what has happened there and what continues to happen through what the cross is. But I need to jar us awake a little bit to what's going on in a piece of Scripture we're going to look at this morning that might feel very mundane to you, especially if you grew up in America and if you had all grew up pinging on the church. For many of us... Um, especially at different intervals of our lives, or we have been aware of this with other people, we tend to participate in church in the United States around two major holidays, Christmas and Easter. We actually have a term for that in pastoral ministry, CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only. That we, we only come and participate in, in the faith community when 
there's an overwhelming amount of either duty, guilt, or obligation. And those, two are, those are two moments when, when those tend to pull us in. Now, those are two fantastic moments. But part of what happens in that rhythm of the regularity of only going on those weekends or going predominantly then and having the rest of our Christian experience be a bit adrift is that we hear the same two stories all the time. And we hear them oftentimes the same way. This morning, just in the, the regular digesting of Scripture, we're, we're not trying to make this a weird fit. But this morning, we are going to look at a Christmas story. Because it happens to be where we are in the journey through Luke. But as we do this morning, what I want to pull you towards, what I want to prompt in you, is an examination again of what it means for God to show up. For God to put flesh and bones on and participate in the human story. Because we're at this, this crucial interval at this part of the story. If we miss what's going on right here at the ground floor, we will misunderstand the rest of what Luke is trying to accomplish. And I would argue the rest of what happens in the life of Jesus himself. But this morning is not a high challenge morning. There isn't an, an imperative, a mandate, a command in the middle of this text saying, this then is how you ought to live or what you ought to do. This is a formational kind of story. This is the story of who we are as we wrestle with whether or not we want to follow the way of a guy who says, I am God in flesh and bones. As we examine this morning, let me invite you to the beginning of the story again, to a foundation again of God disrupting humanity in the most peculiar kind of way. We're in Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. You can feel free if you want to follow along on the screen. We provide it for you there. If you want to use your phone, you absolutely can. Although I was warned this morning, if you're checking your fantasy football on your phone this morning, your team will probably lose. So, I actually don't do fantasy football. I don't even like, understand it, really. But um, I was just told that. So, you do what you want with that. So, we are in Luke chapter 2. This is how it goes. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. There are a few passages in scripture that are as familiar as that one. I mean, in the beginning, God created is pretty familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, it's pretty familiar. This one is so familiar. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, let's just walk through this real quickly, in case you've missed these details in the past. This is a big deal. Uh, in the Roman world, this would happen on regular intervals, usually under new power structures. And the whole point of taking a census in the Roman world was to build a tax base. You need to fund a massive empire somehow. And if you don't know who's in your empire, you can't tax them well. And so what happens here is a hugely economically and power-driven shuffling of people. And the way it would work in the Roman world is in all these conquered nation states, they would require you to go to your, your home village. So if you've left home, it's very different than our society, or if you leave home, your new home is where you are at that moment, and you can tax there. You're required to go back to your, your family of origin and be around them and sign up again in the roster to say, I am a human being alive with this many kids, and I've got this wife or whatever. You've got to go home to do that. Now, that is a background piece but it gives us some of the content for why this develops the way it does develop. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, 
The story so far has not focused on Joseph. And as we said already in this, this is, what's happening in the narrative that Luke's put out in front of us, it's really upside down and backwards from what we would expect. We've had two angels show up and talk to people. And both times it has been wild. First time in the temple to an old man being told, you're going to have a kid. And then the angel says, and don't tell anybody about it. I'll make sure you can't do it. You're not going to talk until that kid's born. The second time to a young woman, that's in Jerusalem, the center of power, the second time is a young woman up in Galilee, which is the outskirts of, of both the empire and Palestine. To a young woman who is engaged to be married but unmarried and being told by the same angel, you're going to have a baby. Both instances completely turn the lives of these two families upside down. If you remember last week, what happened after all that happened is that Mary from Galilee travels the, down to the lower regions of Judea around Jerusalem and she goes to visit her relative, Elizabeth. And the two of them spend time together. And the first filling of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, in Luke, is of Elizabeth, a woman. And she prophesies over another woman, Mary, to establish the origin of the kingdom. And Mary responds in her own kind of prophetic way in the song to say, I understand what's coming out of me, what my life is now going to be. And the song that she lays out is a song that's rich and deep about the kind of kingdom that's coming. The kind where the rich will no longer be in power and the poor will have their needs taken care of. As she gets, she understands how upside down and backwards this whole thing is. And then she goes home. She goes back north to Galilee. Now this is, this is a kind of crazy thing. This is a very challenging time and place to travel, especially as a woman, particularly one who's young. So she's made a journey from Galilee down to Judea and back again, taking anywhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 days to do so, depending on your travel plans. Her relative has their baby. Then a little bit later, it's time for her to travel with her husband because the power structure told her to. The government says you've got to go on another journey. At this point, about nine months has passed because she's coming to turn. But her and her husband, Joseph, saddle up and travel. They take off on their way to Nazareth, or down, excuse me, down to Bethlehem from Nazareth. This is a massive journey at a time when she is pretty vulnerable. But she is committed to this man. And because of it, she's got to go on a journey. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now stop here for a second. We need to unpack a few things. One of my favorite things to unpack here because it's so disruptive and another thing that's crucial to our conversation. The thing that's so disruptive here is we have a really wonky view of what's going on in the storyline. Out, out of the King James Version, uh, some language was mistranslated into English. And we have a narrative that goes something like, Mary and Joseph travel from the north to the south. They get there because of the census. 
They go knock on the innkeeper's door. They find a room. It's full because the census is happening. And they leave town, go to the outskirts, and find a manger, which is probably like a grotto, um, a rock overhang where there's some sheep hanging out, and they have a baby there, right? We've heard the story, right? The issue is none of the language and none of the cultural context give us that kind of picture. What's going on here is the families of people who are deeply committed to one another by blood are all coming together. So think about this for a second. A census triggers everything. It triggers a return of family groups to their hometowns. Joseph and Mary travel like all their relatives do to the same place. They don't show up anonymously. They don't show up unknown. They come among their clan and people. Now, a word that's mistranslated often, the NIV actually gets right on this particular point. The word we hear uh, and have heard through the King James and other translations in English is the word, there was no room for them in the inn. Unfortunately, that's, that's not the word. The word is guest room. There was no room for them in the guest room, which makes perfect sense if you think on it. Families are coming home. The people who live in that place only have so many places for people. We have now good archaeological evidence of the way a first century uh, Bethlehem home is built and constructed. Typically, um, the way it was built is kind of as one big room. If you had a little bit of extra money, you would add a second room to that. And that would be the guest room. Anyone who came to travel would stay in that space. But this big room is the important part. In this big room, it's split into two parts. The living space, where you'd cook, where you'd eat, where you'd spend time together if necessary. A lot of times you would be spending time outside of this space because these were closed quarters. The other part of the room, what we've found, is a stable. Frequently, in Bethlehem and many places across the ancient Near East, the animals were brought in at night into the home where people live. I grew up in a, in a small town in eastern Washington, and my good friend, um, he had a, a, a kind of smallish house growing up, but I always envied him because they had this amazing TV room that I, I was always blown away by. We, and they always had a big television and the sound system and all of it, so if we're going we're gonna to watch movies, we're going to go to Neil's house. I never really understood the architecture of his house um, until I was a, a bit removed from it. We were in the kitchen, and we'd regularly eat in the kitchen, and then we'd move into the TV room. And it was, it was peculiar. There was a step down to get into his TV room. I didn't really understand it. Like, why is there a step down in your TV room? No big deal. It dawned on me after some significant amount of time, and there's no real purpose to any of this other than helping us understand the biblical narrative, that it used to be a garage. What was attached to his house was a garage that was converted into living space. And it dawned on me, reading through material concerning this particular narrative, that we're not the first ones to have garages attached to our houses. In Bethlehem, what you have is you have a garage attached to living space. Now again, these aren't animals that you're riding on necessarily. They're ones you're keeping for food, keeping for their productivity. But it was keenly important to make sure a couple things. Your animals were safe and that your family stayed warm. Having the animals inside the home makes perfect sense for that. 
What's going on in this narrative is not a young couple who's left destitute to go fend for themselves out in the edges and outskirts of town. What's going on in this narrative is a return of two young people having a child to their family and being taken care of inside those homes. But we know in ancient Near East that the way women gave birth was not in isolation like we do now. In the ancient Near East, as is today in the Near East, women get together and they give birth with each other. Moms, aunties, cousins, sisters, all together. The men oftentimes would leave. To have anything other than that happen in the biblical narrative of Mary giving birth is us violating everything we know to be true about just the way culture is there. Now, the reason I bring all this up, not to disrupt your view of the nativity and the manger and all that, although that's kind of fun, the reason I bring this up is because it goes to an often overlooked point at this particular moment. Let me ask you a few questions. At this moment, are Mary and Joseph married? No. Are they pregnant? Obviously, yeah. What's their story? Why are they pregnant and unmarried? Because an angel came along with no witnesses and told a young woman that she was going to become pregnant even though she was a virgin. And then it happened. How believable is that story here today? If your good friend told you, hey, I'm with my partner, we're not married, an angel told me I was going to get pregnant, and it happened, we would roll our eyes. We'd have trust issues with that storyline. What can be assumed about Mary and Joseph is that their community around them would have trust issues concerning their story. We know that's true because as Jesus matures and as the family of Jesus matures, we see the challenge happen repeatedly by his half-brothers concerning his legitimacy as a child. We see people on the outskirts begin to, to pick at Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, as if he is his son, but we all know probably not. This becomes a part of their story that can never be undone. There's assumptions made about Mary, about her virtue, about her purity. And then she has to go home and face her, her new husband's family. The point here that's crucial for us to understand is in order for this to happen this way, Mary and Joseph, and I'll, I'll point predominantly at Mary, they willfully walk a very difficult road. She chooses when confronted by the angel and is given a choice, do you want to do this or not? And she says, I'm in. Be as, be, may it be as you say. I'm not sure she understood how challenging it would be this soon. She might have been thinking, okay, we can stay in Nazareth. I'm going to have my baby there. Then we can tell the family. We can get married. We'll kind of make it all look kosher. And this brings everything to the forefront. They're not off in obscurity the edge of Bethlehem. They're at the center of Joseph's family. She's not alone giving birth. She's with all the women in Joseph's family giving birth. The storyline that they've given is not believable. Maybe people are nodding their heads saying, yeah, we're on your team, we're on your side, we trust you said that's happened. But really, that's a hard pill to swallow. You see, the beginning of the storyline of the in flesh and bones version of God is riddled with challenge. 
challenges to people who make a decision to participate in what God's up to, even though it costs them something huge. It's been this journey through the beginning stage of Luke has begun to reframe my appreciation for Mary. I, I'm finding such deep respect for a woman who walked a road that I can't even pretend to understand when it comes to what's going on inside of her heart and her mind and her soul. And she embraces the joy of having a son and faces the potential hostility of a family around her. Facing a storyline and a narrative and a reputation that is never going to be put back together well. This is the inception of the Incarnation. This is the beginning of Jesus on earth. The story goes on. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch of their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you, and here's our word. Gospel. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christos, the Savior, the Hero. He is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Let me just paint this picture for you for a second. Bethlehem is a notorious uh, agrarian community. It's small, and on the outskirts of it, it's all farming and shepherding. This place still today, if you go to Bethlehem today, all around it, that's about all it's good for, is raising sheep on. There are still shepherds who live quite similar to shepherds 2,000 years ago, with a bit more creature comforts than they had at the time that Jesus was born. But the picture is pretty plain. What we have is we have a group of guys out taking care of their sheep when an angel shows up. Now, let me point this out to you. Our flannel graph version of angels showing up to shepherds doesn't quite cut the mustard. When you think of a shepherd, you probably think of someone who's got some nobility because they're part of the biblical story. You know, yeah, they're working class, but it's kind of cool that they're part of this. And if you look at nativity scene, they look pretty all right. I mean, if you take the nativity piece and you hang it up next to one of the wise men, they don't look that different, right? They're, they're pretty similar. The issue is you can't smell the difference in a nativity. Shepherds lived rough almost entirely. They had to move their flocks around. They didn't have the ability to put their roots down and say, this will be the spot where we're going to, to stay. So oftentimes what you have is you have groups of, of shepherds working together to take care of groups of sheep that don't belong to them. They belong to someone who's wealthier than them. And they're the ones who are intended to make sure those sheep are safe and well-fed. And if you're living off the land, sheep can only stay in one spot so long, they need to move to get more food. And so you move with them. And you'd have these tracts of land that you would move those sheep from one to another, and you'd go with. There are no showers, there's no shelter, you are there with sheep. 
You smell like sheep. You participate in life like a sheep. In fact, oftentimes shepherds were looked at as a necessary evil in the ancient Near East. In Palestine, there's a sacrificial system that demands a huge amount of sheep. Sheep were welcome to go into the temple when oftentimes shepherds were not. Granted, sheep are going in for something that they aren't aware of as they enter the temple, but they get to go in nonetheless. What we have in the shepherd class, we have in this group of people, are some of the people who are overlooked, marginalized, and outsiders. And then an angel shows up. Now, this is our third angel appearance in Luke, and we're just in the second chapter. Now, again, I don't know what you think about angels showing up. I don't know if you believe it. I don't know if you struggle with it. But let's just put ourselves in the narrative for a second. Let's say it happened. We have an old man in the temple being told he's going to have a kid. We have a young woman in Nazareth being told she's going to have a kid. And then we have some shepherds out in the field being told a king has been born. Messiah, the anointed one, is here. And then that angel is backed up by a chorus of angels with a refrain about God. The question that demands to be asked is why? Why this? Why these guys? Why this way? What's happening here? Let's lean in a little bit further. Verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise a child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. I get this picture of this kind of rough crew of people out in the field taking care of sheep, being told by an angel, the Messiah has come. And then, I don't know why this is my picture, I get a picture of like a group of high school boys who have just been told some of the most exciting news that they can imagine. Maybe there's a hot girl over there, maybe there's free ice cream up the way, maybe their favorite sports team did whatever sports teams do, I don't know. But you know when high school boys like push off each other's shoulders and like kind of jump and are giddy and running? That's the image of my mind of these guys. They say, let's go see. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's go find out what's going on here. And they do. I don't know how they do it. I don't know if they go door to door or if they start asking around, hey, does anyone know if there's a baby been born lately? We're looking for that baby. I don't know if they got the, you know, the sideways look, like, what are you doing here? You're in town. You're looking for a baby. This is weird. But somehow they find the house. And they find Mary and they find Joseph and they find the baby. And they, they make a visit. They're compelled to see this child. And when they do, they leave and they tell everybody what they saw. Which again, could be a weird story. Hey, we were in the field, there was an angel, we went to Bethlehem, we found a baby. That's a cool story. 
But they are compelled to actually go find Messiah. And then whoever they come across, they're compelled to tell them about it. And this question of why these guys, why this way, I think is answered in their response. The angels leave and go back to heaven. And they can't stop. They can't keep themselves from going to find Messiah. If it's happened that God has shown up in flesh and bones on earth, they want to see it with their own eyes. And for some reason, God has unfit to invite them to the table, to come be the first, to come and see the face of God on earth. And they do. And when they do, it rewires something in them. They start telling people about it. They can't help but say, we saw some angels. It was nutty. We went to Bethlehem. We saw a baby, just as angels said. We talked with his parents. They told us their angel story. We're all in agreement. This is different. Something is happening on earth has not happened before. You see, I think what's going on in this, this whole storyline is the first impression of what the incarnation is changes people. The incarnation in and of itself, the reality of God arriving in the dust of humanity and walking here, being here, being among us, we see it begin to already ripple. I mean, we have a baby who can't talk, can't fend for itself, can't articulate an idea, can't do miracles, can't do anything, won't do anything. It's just a vulnerable newborn baby. And already, we see people turn their life upside down because of it. We see a woman who walks into a difficult storyline because of it. What the text says about her, she treasures it all in her heart. We see guys who are very excluded from the center of social normals leave their place of work mid-shift. I don't know what happened to sheep. I mean, that's on them. Leave their shift, mid, leave their work mid-shift to go visit a baby. And when they do, they're compelled. Something's changing in them to share what they saw. See, I think what's lost on us, particularly in American Christianity, because we have so interwoven our nationalism and our Christianity, is that the importance, the beauty, and the absolute wild nature of the Incarnation is lost on us. Think about any and every other faith system you can right now, and tell me one that includes a God coming to earth this way. We have gods coming to earth in many other faith systems, absolutely. Many times it's a God coming to earth in order to take control and power from people. What we see here is something entirely upside down and backwards. We see a God choosing to come through the most humble means into the human narrative, to be vulnerable, to choose to have to depend on people who themselves are vulnerable. A woman who's unmarried and a virgin, 
a man who has to make a decision what he's going to do with his unmarried pregnant wife. A group of guys who are ruffians at the edge of society invited to come and witness it all. We see that the incarnation itself is quite vulnerable. It's quite humble. And yet, that vulnerability, that humility, is already beginning to change the people around it. I think what gets lost on us often, as we think on the arrival of God into the human story, is we assume we already know about it. And what's lost on us is how wild it is, how strange it is, how altogether against the grain of the way humanity is going. I mean, go back to our original storyline here. When things fall off the rails, humans are doing their own thing, God trying to interact. <clears throat> I would not blame God who created humans if that God decided, you know, things are just too messy and too broken. I need to get away from you. And just the opposite happens. God leaves security and comfort and chooses to come to be vulnerable, to become unsafe, in order to be part of the human story. This is watershed moment. This changes the possibility of everything. Crucifixion hasn't happened. Resurrection hasn't happened. All the stories of the way Jesus interacts with people and begins to show us this is how humanity is supposed to operate, the way we're supposed to function, the way we're supposed to humanize other people and take care of them and love them when they're very unlovable hasn't happened yet. And none of it is possible without the incarnation. So here's what I'd like to give you this morning. I'd like to give you three possible pathways away from the incarnation right now. First, I want to offer an invitation for you to receive the incarnation. Here's what I mean. Many of us intellectually have dabbled with the birth story of Jesus. And yet, we don't have a view of ourselves or of humanity that's created space to accept the fact that God loves you enough to show up and be part of your story. What the Incarnation is showing us, through its vulnerability and humility, through its wild origins, is that God loves willing to show up for people. And specifically that God loves you and is willing to show up for you. So let me offer, this morning, beyond the intellectual and beyond the story of the birth, maybe you seem to receive the incarnation, the reality of how much God loves you. Second, some of us have received the Incarnation, and we've become hoarders of it. we become people who've become overweight on the concept that God does love us. And we continue to take it in, and take it in, and take it in. We continue to accept the fact that God has shown up for me, He loves me, I'm special, I'm privileged, I have place in the Kingdom. I want to challenge you. The Incarnation is not something to be hoarded. Look at the way these people interact with it. 
They don't hold on to it. They give it away. In its substance itself, it is God giving himself away to people, leaving comfort and safety to find vulnerability and unsafety. The challenge here as we wrestle with the incarnation is we cannot hold it to ourselves. And it's difficult to put tangibility. It's hard to say, no, here's how you give away the incarnation. And go buy some of some carne asada tacos and have a conversation. I don't know. But we have to do some work to think on. If we're willing to receive the fact that God loves us, how are we giving that away? Verbally. Demonstratively. As we see this being the predicated part, that this is necessary, the incarnation is necessary for Jesus to do everything that Jesus does, then it informs we must examine what does Jesus do and how does he do it. If we're going to give away the incarnation, we're going to give away the goodness of God, the gospel, as it comes to earth, we've got to become deeply familiar with the way the incarnation matures. And third, those, if either of those pathways are ones that sound like, man, I need that. I need to receive the incarnation. Or I need to start giving the incarnation away. Let me wet it with a third pathway. There's something about the incarnation and the reason in my mind why it's so challenging <clears throat> is because the incarnation in and of itself is not something to be done. It is a state of being. As I see the welcome that comes as God shows up in flesh and bones, it is not a task to be accomplished or an idea to be received. It's an invitation to ourselves become people who are incarnate. People who embody the way of Jesus. People whose experience as we move our flesh and bones, as we express our ideas, as we relate to other people, that we become the incarnate, the in-flesh, the in-bones version of God as we interact with people. Now I'm not saying become a little God. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is the outcome of the story is a God, as that God gives himself away, also removes himself from the story and says, now it's your turn to become like me, to act like me, to think like me, to treat people the way I treated people. If we relegate this simply to be a set of tasks to do, we'll miss it. But the invitation here, the thought to ponder on, the prayer to begin to speak is how do we become the flesh and bones of Jesus in Portland? How do we become the flesh and bones of Jesus in our friendships? How do we become the flesh and bones of Jesus in our families, in our neighborhoods? This is the challenge of the incarnation. And in my view, in my mind, the only way it's possible is if we mimic the patterns of the original incarnation. Humility, vulnerability, challenge, examination of what it's going to take in order to be Jesus here. So my invitation to you, receive the incarnation. Give the incarnation away and become incarnate people following Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you 
I thank you for showing up. That's my prayer. I'm just really grateful that you came. I admit, I have not reached the bottom floor of understanding the implications of what it means that you showed up. None of us have, but we, we need to be challenged by the truth and the reality. You care deeply about people, so deeply that you would participate here. God, I pray that it would sit at the center of our souls. You are a relentless, loving God who's crossed the barrier of spirit and flesh, of heaven and earth, the distance of separation in order to demonstrate in real life, in real terms, your care for people. Spirit, I pray that you would use our understanding of the Incarnation you would use this, this moment we've had together to become reacquainted with it. Spirit, I pray you would use it to form us, to motivate us, to challenge us, to give us the kind of creative ideas on what it looks like to actually be people who increasingly look like you, like Jesus, like the Incarnation. God, we're doing our best to love you. We know that's feeble at best. So I pray, I pray, God, that you would meet us in the middle of our pursuit, trying. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen.